Welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir. Today we will be speaking about opium, opium trade, opium smuggling, relations between Republican Turkey and East Asia, and we're going to be speaking with Daniel MacArthur Seal. He's currently a postdoctoral fellow at the British Institute at Ankara. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So today we'll be talking about opium. It's obviously a topic that many of the listeners know, perhaps they've tried it themselves, but we're going to be looking at opium trade and smuggling, specifically in Turkey and in the larger Eastern Mediterranean and even in its connections to East Asia uh, during the Republican period. And we're going to explore how this gives us a window, not only to global history and the history of commodities, but also brings in a viewpoint to look at the nature of cosmopolitanism and intercommunal relations in Republican Turkey. So, Daniel, let's start with this question. Why, why opium? Why did you? Why were you interested in this commodity? Right. Well, I suppose that Turkey's association with heroin and opium is more present in our minds recently. Right. For example, like just today, I was reading how um, a Kurdish activist and heroin trader in London um, was apparently assassinated by another drug dealer on the orders of Mit um, back in the early 90s. Mit being the, uh, the, the Turkish, Turkish in- intelligence yeah. service, yeah. So heroin and Turkey became a kind of a growing association. Growing up for me in London, I was surrounded by some of these uh, figures. I mean, this murder happened just uh, 500 meters from my home. Mm. And then, But then when we think historically, I guess opium in the historical imagination is really located in China and the opium wars. Right. Well, I mean, when I started looking into this and I realized that, you know, Turkey was the fourth biggest opium producer in the world. And in fact, at one point in the 1930s, overtook India as the biggest opium exporter. Hmm. I was surprised how little had been written on this subject. And I, I decided to start looking into it. Now, even in Turkey, this is a surprise to many people that Turkey had this role in opium production. Right. Although some Turkish works have started to introduce this topic to the, mm. the wider public. Because, I mean, usually the association of Turkey and heroin is something from the 50s, 60s, 70s. Yeah. yeah, and what's interesting is this goes right back into the Ottoman period. In fact, Ottomans in the 1820s, they try and create this opium monopoly, mm-hmm. which ends up falling apart when the British pressure the Ottomans to get rid of all of their monopolies mm-hmm. after their trade relations start. Yeah, and uh, just thinking of kind of my background in early modern history of medicine, I mean you get a sense of opium appearing as a sort of substance, a medical substance in the 16th century, but there hasn't really been uh, a close study of the usages of, of the of the drug or of its production or anything. Yeah. So, okay, let's get some details. How much opium was being produced, by who and why, and where was it being traded to? Okay, well, this picture changes. I mean, this this the opium trade changes quite significantly, and that's the kind of period that I'm focusing in on is this one of transition where... In Ottoman Empire, opium is mainly grown in southwestern Turkey around, unsurprisingly, the city of Afyon. Afyon meaning opium in Turkish. Mm-hmm. Now, at that time, supposedly, the, as the, during a period of the Opium Wars and as global demand for opium increases, so too does the land cultivated for the purposes of opium production in southwestern Turkey. And the people who have studied that early 19th century period described the relationship as one of Greek and Turkish peasants growing opium mm-hmm. and being encouraged to grow opium, being lent money to turn land into fields of poppies by sort of Greek 
and Jewish and Armenian middlemen who work between the port cities where there are these Levantine and foreign opium traders who are then purchasing the, the refined opium to sell to markets in London, uh, Paris, etc. And from there, they are then sent into the areas of high opium consumption like China and Southeast Asia. I see. What changes, I mean, there's one real, the big change, which is that international treaties start getting established, the first being focused on East Asia in 1909, but then during the First World War, there's this kind of opium crisis and opium shortage because of the medical necessities of opium. And then in the immediate aftermath of the First World War, as part of the League of Nations settlement and indeed as part of the Treaty of Lausanne that establishes the Turkish Republic, Turkey is forced into complying with this newly developing opium regime. Mm -hmm. And this process why, by which opium becomes increasingly restricted and illegal in most places at most times really changes the nature of the industry of production and distribution of opium from so, Turkey. Let's say by 1920, after World War I, I mean, where is it legal to grow and sell opium? Well, in 1920, growing opium and uh, selling opium remains legal in Turkey uh, under restrictions. But what happens is that because elsewhere, processing and purchase and sale of opium becomes much more restricted, mm. Turkey becomes something like a safe haven for opium refinement in that period. And we see like the movement of capital and te um, technical expertise, pharmacists from France moving to Istanbul and indeed from other places and establishing some of the first heroin factories and morphine-producing mm. pharmaceutical factories in the city. Previously, all of Turkish opium has been exported raw and mm. processed in factories in France and, and Switzerland and the like. But we have the establishment of these first few factories in, in Istanbul in 1926. So for the early republic, it was kind of a budding industry, something that they're... It seems like that the state itself was trying to encourage. Yeah, the state... I mean, opium is an obvious source of foreign currency, um, and Turkey is facing quite a big uh, balance of trade problem in its, in its early years. So they look into ways of increasing opium production and export. And the Turkish state at the beginning is quite welcoming of the establishment of these pharmaceutical factories so mm -hmm. that it can then... Uh, gain money from tax revenues and export duties and the like. Mm -hmm. Now, the first of these factories is interesting, and it's where this relationship between Turkey and East Asia becomes very apparent. Hmm. As the Western powers are restricting opium production, um, East Asian demand for opium consumption has to has to find new sources, and one of them is seems to be Turkey, this first factory is called the Oriental Products Company. And as the name suggests, it has this connection to East Asia. Uh, it's set up by two Japanese brothers who turn up in Istanbul in around 1925-26. And they make a partnership with a local, um, a local Turkish-Armenian citizen uh, to establish this factory. And it's then followed by factories with French managers and uh, expertise and capital behind them. Mm. So just to make things clear, uh, this opium is being taken from the city of Afyon. It's been processed in Istanbul. But what is it being processed into? Is it morphine or just, I mean, is it being used as a drug? For my own curiosity or maybe the curiosity of the listeners, like why, who is using it in East Asia and why? Okay, well, it's it's has a variety of uses. Um, 
the opium most of the opium just leaves this leaves turkey as raw opium and mm. it can then be used for medical purposes or for smoking mm. but what these factories are doing is producing morphine and heroin which both have both a medical purpose and also a stimulating purpose uh, we can say and a kind of increasing popu- increasingly popular as recreational mm-hmm. drugs now that's the reason really that international attention turns to these factories is because this uh, Turkish produced heroin starts turning up in places where it's not meant to be or it's not legally present mm. mainly in Alexandria and Egypt where there's an increasing concern around heroin consumption amongst all levels of society from peasants to uh, the bourgeoisie and also in Marseille um, and also importantly in Southeast Asia and East Asia. So it's being legally traded to all these places and then the governments are worried about because they can't control the site of production about the, un- the intended, unintended and in, say intentional effects of drug addiction on the uh, population. Well, there's a, the process kind of changes. I mean, at the beginning there were some legal exports but by the late 20s, all of the, almost all of this heroin is, is leaving the country illegally hmm. and is arriving in its places of destination illegally. So it's in ta- uh, cans of tinned fruit, it's in secret compartments in wardrobes or in the soles of people's shoes, or it's smuggled in a whole variety of ways that are, seem familiar to, I mean, which, which we know from the kind of present day drugs market. Right, but at a very small individual level, they're not just taking whole ships. No, it's not whole ships, but there are like big loads. I mean, generally, as as restrictions become more tight, the quantities of smuggled drug become smaller and smaller and more individualized. So you end up with you have everything from a sailor with a pocket uh, with with you know five hundred grams of Turkish opium in to some of the biggest uh, trades that go out are like in the thousands of kilos. Mm. So could you just give us one example of, or a more concrete example of one of these opium shipments? How does it work? Who was involved? Okay, sure. Well, one of the most interesting early shipments of opium that ends up uh, in criminal hands in East Asia is sent out on board this ship, which some people might have heard of. It's it's called the Komagata Maru. It's a Japanese ship which gains its notoriety actually in the First World War when it turns up in Western Canada carrying uh, would-be immigrants from uh, South Asia but is rejected by the Canadian authorities. <laughs> and the centenary of that was commemorated with some uh, centenary stamps that depicted <laughs> the boat. But anyway, 10 years later... Wait, whose stamps were these? Uh, Canadian oh, stamps, okay. postal stamps, yeah. So they commemorated their rejection of the boat. Well, I think they were more mourning. It was kind of seen as a point of national shame in Canada and as a kind of lesson learned, I, I suppose. Okay, let's let's move on to anyway. the other illicit substances in the boat. Well, 10 years later, this boat uh, leaves from Kobe in Japan and makes this journey via Shanghai around the through the Suez Canal and up into Geneva. In Geneva, it picks up some morphine that's been produced by La Roche, like now famous manufacturer of moisturizers and the like, Mm -hmm. and then heads to Istanbul where it takes on board 10,000 kilos of Turkish opium. Uh, Now, while it's in Istanbul, this boat, some kind of authorities become aware of something funny going on. A Russian Jewish 
figure approaches the Danish consul and asks for an extension to his Chinese passport. And the fact that this guy has a Chinese passport is not in any way ethnically Chinese, raises the suspicions of the consul, who then looks into um, what these guys are up to, and it turns out they're buying opium. Now, the nearest Chinese ambassador is in Rome, and he writes to him. This ambassador in Rome then writes to the Chinese representative at the League of Nations in Geneva, which is meant to be controlling this opium trade internationally. But anyway, by the time this kind of step-by-step uh, -step dissemination of information takes place, the ship is already on its way back through um, through the Suez Canal and on its way to East Asia. Mm -hmm. Now, this opium has been carried legally. Uh, it's meant to be, it's exported from Turkey where there's still no restrictions on the export of opium. And it's been sent to supposedly Vladivostok where, again, the governing party, the Soviet Union, doesn't have restrictions on the import of opium. Mm -hmm. But what happens along the way is that when it gets somewhere near Shanghai, the boat suddenly changes direction ends up on the outskirts of the city and the opium is unloaded by some smaller Chinese ships that take it into the city and it more or less disappears. Mm. And at that point, that's the point at which it becomes illegal because opium exports to China by this stage have been made illegal. Um, and then, so whilst there's this one process whereby the authorities are formed internationally, there's another strange process by which Uh, this opium's presence in Shanghai comes to light. Mm -hmm. Now, a guy called N.E.B. Ezra, uh, Nesim Ezra, uh, who is quite a, a famous figure in the city already. He's the editor of Israel's Messenger, a Zionist newspaper. Mm -hmm. He goes to the, the Shanghai court claiming that um, some figures he's, he's identified, some free Chinese uh, nationals from a company called Guanhao and Co., have stolen his opium. <laughs> Now, the court is uh, somewhat puzzled by this claim. It basically rejects the fact that this he can sue them for an illegal product, the, right. the theft of something that is already illegal in the territory. And Ezra is obviously disappointed and he seeks to withdraw the case. But because there's a huge um, public interest in this case, I mean, the fact is that this becomes a big It's a one. Of, it's a it's a large criminal lawsuit that's going on. He's not allowed to withdraw, and because he can't put up the bail money, he ends up in prison himself. Mm. Now he's already has some rivals amongst other um, the Baghdadi Jews of yeah, Shanghai. Okay. Exactly the Baghdadi Jews of Shanghai who are not so pro-Zionist as he is, and so this kind of story ends up all over the papers. It becomes he. Uh, the opium, some of the opium is recovered from these uh, free Chinese individuals he's accused. And um, this kind of develops into a big case known as the Canton Road opium case. Now, some interesting things happen amongst in the, in the course of this in, these police investigations and court proceedings. One of them is that Ezra claims, um, Ezra demands a Spanish judge. Mm-hmm. And he does so on the basis that he claims that the Spanish consul has accepted that he is a Spanish citizen. Uh, Ezra was born um, in northern India to a Baghdadi Jewish father and has never set foot in Spain in his life. Mm -hmm. And the Chinese um, judges on the, in the court reject the fact that he can be considered Spanish. And this is presumably an extraterritorial court, right? Yeah, this is an extraterritorial court operating in Shanghai where you have to have a judge of your own nationality mm -hmm. if it's from one of these powers that has extraterritorial deal with the Chinese uh, authorities. 
Now, the Chinese judges turn around to Ezra and tell him that he's Turkish. This is the, also another country that he's never set foot in in his life. But owing to the fact that Ezra previously had claimed to be Ottoman, after having been British for most of his life, he then drops his British nationality when there's a treaty passed that stops British citizens trading in opium in China, mm -hmm. decides to adopt his father's Ottoman nationality. And then because of this, um, the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire ends up being considered Turkish by the Chinese court. Mm -hmm. And all of this kind of becomes significant because at the same time in Geneva, there's a negotiation going on of the the latest opium treaty. And one of the big Chinese complaints is that extraterritoriality is being used by drug smugglers to protect themselves from uh, being apprehended or properly punished by the Chinese authorities. Mm -hmm. So Ezra's case kind of gains a, a, a significance in these Geneva negotiations that are going on. So is that the end of the case? Uh, more or less. There's more, but uh, <laughs> it's kind of indeterminable. On that note, we are going to change gears for a split second. We're going to turn to our very own Sam Dolby, who f discovered a very similar incident. Same time period, the 1930s, same place, Republican Turkey, also about drug smuggling, but a very different drug. Not opium, but hashish. Uh, let's take a listen. Most of my friends would agree that the most sensible way to use a shoe is to put a foot in it. But there are also more lucrative and dangerous ways of using footwear, like drug smuggling. I'm Sam Dolby, and this is a report from the French Foreign Ministry Archives in Nantes about an example of this alternate use of shoes. The beautiful soles were stamped with the word Stambul, and an image of a water pipe. But the footwear carried a scent not of feet, but of hashish, when in February of 1934, Lebanese authorities intercepted 7.5 kilograms of this intoxicant, quote, compressed in the shape of shoe soles. It was about to be exported by sea by a certain Giorgio de Orsi of Beirut. The French forwarded all of this information to the League of Nations, citing the picture of the souls as evidence that post-Ottoman pot flowed from Turkey. The letter also included a picture of a shipment of drugs intercepted by British authorities at the Transjordanian border. In this photograph, the stamp of the crescent on a bag also seemed to limb a Turkish connection, although I must admit that when reading the description of the image in French, which refers to the crescent as le croissant, I couldn't help but imagine a French bakery connection too. In any case, we know why the French were eager to blame Turkey. The League of Nations had charged them with ostensibly civilizing Syria and Lebanon, and a part of this charge was adhering to new international anti-trafficking regulations. We also know that France and other industrialized countries were keen on getting their pharmaceutical industries off on the right foot, which meant eliminating heroin in favor of morphine, which is similarly concocted from poppy seeds. French zeal for enforcement of anti-trafficking laws in Turkey might have been driven by their knowledge of where the drugs ended up. They looked the other way in Lebanon and waited for the proverbial other shoe to drop. Turkish drugs would probably end up in France itself, as Marseille functioned as an important center for trafficking of all kinds. Though statistics regarding the volume of this trade are hard to come by, Turkey's historical implication in the narcotics business is worth mentioning. Some of these linkages, the racist 1978 American film Midnight Express, for example, are less credible than others. <laughs> 
but sometimes the shoe fits. As many people have noted, and as Brian Gingeris has recently pointed out, a decades-long game of footsie has existed between high levels of the Turkish state and organized crime, just as in many other parts of the world. This was most notably evident in Turkey in the 1996 Susurluk scandal, when a car crashed that contained a member of parliament, an Istanbul police official, and a known heroin trafficker, cum assassin, bringing the vaunted deep state, as many refer to this intersection of drugs, politics, and paramilitaries into the open quite spectacularly. But let's get back to Lebanon in 1934. Why would smugglers, people whose livelihood rests on being undetected, include a logo on their shipments? As anyone who knows of WMD or Heisenberg's Blue Sky from shows like The Wire and Breaking Bad could tell you, brand matters, even in an illicit trade. And this is one way to use a shoe. If you'd like to see pictures of the shoes and the brands placed on them, please visit our website, Tosuz of Rock, Turkish for Documents Without Dust, at www.docblog.ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Welcome back to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir. I'm talking to Daniel MacArthur Seal about uh, the role of opium, both in Republican Turkey and in the global economy at large in the 1920s and 30s. So we just had this kind of fascinating anecdote about the movement of uh, opium uh, from Turkey to China, to East Asia, and how it brought about all these sort of legal, conflictual stories, these contradictions uh, as it moved its way through the legal system and in the trading system. But I want to kind of direct our attention back to the Eastern Mediterranean and just figure out what's happening on the Turkish end of this. Well, I mean, the Turkish uh, what's happening in Turkey is also changing and is subject to the kind of these legal pressures. The cases like the one I just described and others of Turkish-produced opium and heroin arriving in ports where it's illegal um, results in a significant amount of pressure being applied to the Turkish government to mm-hmm. restrict what's going on there and to conform to the developing opium regime around the world. Now, eventually, Turkey does comply under the threat of its ships being searched and and this kind of disruption to commerce, particularly from the Americans. Um, from the Americans. And what happens is that Turkey decides to try and answer both the criticism of outsiders and its own need to make cash uh, by creating a monopoly over opium production and export in the country. And it does this in... uh, This process starts in 1931, but it doesn't really get set up until 1933. This is called the Uyushturucu Madale in Hisara, which means the narcotic product monopoly mm-hmm. more or less um now the creation of this product puts lots of these established as i mentioned these established levantine and foreign opium traders out of business they've also been suffering by the fact that their own consuls are rather disapproving of what they've been doing and they have to sub- subject themselves to at least to uk or french or dutch law so we have the arrival of these new kind of figures in this business the monopoly coincides with the closure of these three legal factories that I'd mentioned. And in their place, we get the springing up of numerous small-scale sites of production and refinement of opium that are operating really everywhere from people's basements to country farmhouses outside of Istanbul 
to fancy apartment blocks in the center of the city to villas on some of the islands of um mm-hmm. of Hebeliada and Buyokada, Prinkipo, Halki, and Halki, as they were then known by most of the residents. Um, and and again, when you look at these kind of, I mean, we obviously only know about these factories when they are busted by mm-hmm. the police. And the Turkish state is reporting all of these raids to the League of Nations, and that's where some of these sources come from. So they're trying to demonstrate their own uh, compliance to the law. Exactly, because they have a legal opium export business that they need to protect, and the only way, and they feel like one of the ways that they can insulate themselves from this criticism is by showing a strong hand against the illegal um, and non-controlled opium refinement and export that's going on in the country. So they're submitting these reports. And what's interesting is that, well, just for the first thing is the very diversity of the people involved in this business. So I have cases where, for example, well, firstly, one other interesting thing is that all of these gangs that get busted are highly, well, one might say cosmopolitan. They're ethnically, religiously diverse and they're also socially diverse. So you have cases where, for example, an Italian citizen and a Circassian um, immigrant to Istanbul from the Caucasus are working together in one to run a heroin production site in the city. They get busted and put in prison, and then just a few months later the son of the Italian and the son of the Circassian end up working together in another gang <laughs> doing the same thing, more or less, and they're quite quickly busted as they're already under suspicion by the Turkish authorities. And you have a whole series of these cases where you have a mixture of people who, for whatever reason, they bring a certain connection. So maybe it's, uh, in another case, we have a Jewish banker who, whose brother is living in Paris, and that creates a link that they can then use the brother to distribute the heroin that is uh, being produced in Istanbul after it's been sent along on the Orient Express train line with the help of some train guard to Paris. Different uh, people bringing different connections to these gangs. Actually, the diversity strengthens the criminal network. Right. And so it's kind of like a, necess- a necessity of a smuggling ring that you have people with different, let's say, specialities. Interesting. Or- connections i see so okay so the state is basically shut down is trying to shut down these private factories these private factories are still occurring though they're still functioning but they're doing so illegally in order to export their stuff they have to do it they have to smuggle it out Mm -hmm. in relatively small quantities yeah that's right now to get those connections though they have to basically have people placed around the world in different places i mean this is for me it's an interesting thing because we know when we think of criminal organizations we think of the sort of social trust needed to conduct crime. Uh, and that often is, let's say, created by, let's say, ethnic homogeneity or ethnic, you know, the same, everyone's from the same village, you know, the mafia or whatever. But here you have a sort of multi-confessional, multinational sort of uh, drug ring that has to work together in order to distribute its products. Yeah, and for sure, I mean, there are these, I mean, some of the reasons that police are successful is because there is some kind of breaking of trust. People right. often talk to the police I'm surprised yeah. by how happily they describe their associates <laughs> and so on. I think one of the reasons is that drug penalties at this time are very lenient compared to the present day. So you can be caught with 10 kilos of heroin in your house and you go to prison for six months or nine months and pay a few hundred lira fine. Mm. And I mean, today we'd be looking in most 
um, countries with which I'm familiar, people have been put in prison for five, ten years for the same offences. Right. Now, however, yeah, what's I mean, it's interesting that these groups can work together, especially at a time when the kind of public climate or the, the climate of public opinion on issues of, especially on the presence of minorities is quite hostile right. and in which this kind of public hostility, intercommunal hostility is seen by many historians as something that characterizes this late Ottoman period. Right. I mean, this is, I mean, this is the period when the state is trying to transfer, let's say the middle-class wealth of the Jewish and Greek uh, bourgeois population to kind of its Muslim uh, citizens and so forth. Yeah, and the I mean the the monopolization of opium is part of that process of nationalization and turkification of an economy which is very profitable but which is mostly in the hands of non-Turkish Muslim uh, groups, right? Mm-hmm. But these and partly because of this precariety of I think this precarity of uh, many of these individuals at kind of very unstable time is one of the reasons that turning to illegal drug production is so attractive, as well as the fact that they're unlikely to go to prison for very long if they get caught doing it. Right. So you have a sort of cause, I mean, it seems like you're making an argument for a sort of uh, unintentional cosmopolitanism or looking at the different contexts of cosmopolitanism um, that emerged, let's say, even into the 1930s and 40s, that, that, you know, this history of what we, you know, this romantic period of cosmopolitan Izmir or these port cities, which we often see as ending in, you know, the Mubadalan or World War I, uh, still seems to manage to exist and to a certain degree flourish in the kind of uh, odd economic structures of 1930s and 40s Republican Turkey. Sure. And I mean, it's difficult to pin down because we don't have many sources that give an impression uh, give much subjecthood to these figures right i mean what we have is like whatever the police managed to seize as evidence more or less and the what we know of their networks is that which has been reconstructed by the police Mm -hmm. so we kind of have to make some assumptions that but what we can say for sure is that there's a high level of sociability and there must be a high level of trust between these peoples of different confession ethnicity and class that are operating together Mm mm-hmm so I mean in the same and class is another important issue here like you have smugglers who are really from the most wealthy backgrounds like one character um, Benjamin Blumenthal is the son of um, the Blumenthal record label owner in Istanbul so he's had a very privileged upbringing whilst he in the gang might be working with itinerant vendors or um, bakers or cheese merchants or really I mean everyone from actors to um, fishermen come up working together in these groups mm-hmm. what's frustrating is that you can't exactly reconstruct how those people in- viewed one another mm-hmm. you can only make assumptions based on what you know of their their business practices <laughs> right um, yeah and I think it touches upon these interesting questions that economic historians are asking about, you know, how is social trust credit uh, created, uh, whether in the early modern or the, you know, modern period. Uh, So it seems that, you know, listening to these people, you know, you have the head of the record company, but also kind of, uh, you know, a milkman or a fisherman. I presume that there's obviously a lot of money involved uh, 
in this process. Otherwise, people of high social standing probably wouldn't risk their livelihood or their status uh, in order to undertake this. Um, do you have any idea? I mean, is there any way to get a sense of kind of this smuggling economy? Yeah, well, this is difficult. I mean, because obviously this money is is also kept kind of in the dark and hidden. And it's hard to know how, for example, different people involved were receiving different quantities of money. How this money was divided up between a gang is something I still don't have any evidence of. Uh-huh. What you do hear about is kind of the lump sum that's found alongside the heroin. And you know that, you know, that to buy to buy, for example, ten kilos of opium to produce heroin from, you need a decent amount of capital. Mm-hmm. Um opium in that period is trading between legal opium is trading between 10 15 uh, turkish gold pounds a kilo which um, one assumes that the illegal product is has a higher price mm-hmm. um and sure for, certainly there's money to be made and one of the byproducts of illegalization and these increasing restrictions and their increasing re- enforcement is that the price of heroin increases significantly for mm-hmm. example there's lots of evidence on that in egypt now, the authorities are quite pleased because that's keeping heroin out of the hands of the fellahin, the peasants of mm-hmm. the, um, and the lower classes of, the, of Egyptian society. But that also means more profit for the smugglers who are successful. Right. The kind of core problem of uh, drug regulation and prohibition. So let's just kind of bring this into maybe the into the story that we know better today. You know, how did this kind of state production of opium uh, and the smuggling and the sort of cosmopolitan life of these smugglers uh, come to an end in the 50s and 60s? Or did it come to an end? Has it, you know, does it continue today? Okay, well, I mean, the Turkish state in sort of fits and starts does does the minimum to comply with the demands of, of its Western partners. Um, it reduces the land culti- cultivated for the production of opium um, gradually and then also in, in, in puts in more controls. And Turkey, unlike somewhere like um, Afghanistan, has a very strong state that is able to restrict mm-hmm. the level of opium production. Now, most heroin that is produced in Turkey is made from opium that comes in from Afghanistan mm. rather than that which is smuggled from the, the fields that are there for medical purposes. Sorry, today most of it is. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, like the story of the smugglers, kind of changes to reflect the changing social reality of Istanbul. Uh, you get more and more um, Eastern Anatolian immigrants involved in smuggling, so especially amongst the Laz population and amongst Circassians, who we heard about earlier, and also amongst Kurdish migrants to the cities. Mm. But and as Turkish citizens themselves find themselves. Um, distributing, like they create their own diaspora in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, that provides still more opportunities for smuggling, like the case that we started out with of uh, Kurdish um, and Turkish smugglers in London mm-hmm. in the 1990s or in Germany. So we can see we can see more or less how how smuggling follows these kind of this this transformation of Istanbul into a into a more Anatolian city. Mm. So what I liked about, you know, what this kind of picture that you've presented is that you've really taken the Turkish Republic in the 1930s and 40s, which we often see as a sort of isolated, contracted 
bit, uh, sort of the rump of empire, no longer connected anywhere. And you've really tied it into a global network, a global story of uh, opium production, of heroin, of its trade and import and smuggling. And, you know, some of the anecdotes that you're telling us were fascinating, but I can't imagine where you would find such anecdotes. So let's move on to the question of sources. How do you write this sort of global history of Republican Turkey? Sure. Well, in, in some ways, it's it's easier. I mean, because smuggling is transnational and affects many places, it attracts the interests of a large number of parties. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the most important sources is this League of Nations archive, which is unlike many other archives, in that it really is receiving information from all across the world. That gives you a starting point. Digitization projects have also helped this pro- this uh, my research, whereas, where, for example, now, unlike I would have been able to before, I can keyword search newspapers for right. key terms like opium and find that there's a huge newspaper interest in this topic. Does that work for Turkish as well? That works in Turkey for the post-language uh, reform period. Um, and it also works on the n- a large number of English and French language newspapers that are produced across East Asia. You also have things like the Shanghai Municipal Police Records, which are available online now, um, subject to you or your institution paying some hefty fee. (laughs) And there are various other ways. I mean, to put together this story of smuggling, you really need a very multifocal approach. So I work in US, French, British, Turkish, Greek, Egyptian, Chinese uh, archives, I mean, whether remotely or or in person. Mm -hmm. And I mean, what's interesting about these sources, especially these police reports and these kind of snippets you get of people's lives and their day-to-day routines and who they meet and who they socialize with and who they do business with, is that you get to build up a picture of this kind of complex and what might be called sort of a boundary crossing lives uh, from a very different perspective to the other work that's been done on transnational figures uh, from the kind of the top end of arts, uh, cultural life, politics and business. This is kind of answering what other historians have kind of demanded, which is like a history of cosmopolitanism from below Mm -hmm. and a look at how um, less celebrated figures interact in new places with people that they aren't necessarily bound to by kinship, religion or ethnicity. Right. Yeah, and I think you've done that well. I mean, so often we think of the cause, you know, I'm sure we've all read the memoir of the, let's say, the rich Jewish girl or the, you know, uh, Greek boy in Thessaloniki and the, you know, the girl in like, you know, uh, Cairo reminiscing about her uh, wonderful life in, you know, 1930s or 40s Alexandria and how, you know, she knew all these Greeks and Armenians and Arabs and everyone else. Um and you don't really get a sense of how kind of cosmopolitanism uh, functioned on a daily level, even kind of the economic motors of it and so forth. Um, and so it seems like your research is really providing us uh, a lens and a kind of model of how to do that. So on that note, uh, I invite you to go to the ottomanhistorypodcast.com where Daniel has agreed to provide us a very nice bibliography for further readings on the topic and you should also go to the basement of our website and find our facebook group um 
look at all the different types of links and content that we share on there. So other than that, Daniel, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, And we hope you tune in again soon for another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. Give me a pound, I'm yours, I'm